0: Father God, Lord, thank you so much once again for giving us time uh, to study your word and help us, other God, to enlighten, uh, to learn um, what we are uh, discussing today. And Lord, uh, give us wisdom and understanding, other God, so that we can impart that in our lives. Lord, thank you so much for all your grace and love. Thank you so much for giving us this time. In Jesus' name we thank you and pray
1: amen amen all right so this morning we're going to finish what we started last time but didn't have time to finish and then we're also going to do what i had originally planned for today which is to begin chapter three of first john so we're in chapter two verse 28 until chapter three verse three let's start by reviewing a little bit about what we've done until now so john in in verses 26 and 27, gives us his summary statements or his concluding statements for his first argument, which is that uh, we as Christians are able to be in fellowship together with one another and also with the apostles who brought the original message of the gospel. And by extent, we are able to be in fellowship together with God. Uh, because the message brings us into fellowship with him. Now it's necessary for us all to be uh, to be understanding the same doctrines, because in order to have fellowship with one another, uh, we need to be in agreement. So John starts by reminding all of the people who are reading that the message he's bringing to them is the same message that he's given since the beginning. And it was the same message which the Holy Spirit brought from the beginning. So he's noting a consistency among the message. He says, if anyone brings a different kind of message to you, we can know that that is not the message of the gospel, but it is a false gospel. So what he does is he speaks about um, how we can know that we are in the truth as individuals and also in the second chapter, he talks more about how we can know when other people are in the truth and whether they are giving us a correct message. And he ends that by talking about the Holy Spirit within us, that the anointing power of the Holy Spirit is what allows us the ability to understand spiritual things. Because uh, as, Ro- or as Second 1 Corinthians 2 tells us, That the natural man can't understand the spiritual things, but by nature of us having the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is a spiritual entity, we are able to understand spiritual things because the natural mind understands natural things and the spiritual mind understands spiritual things. But in order to understand as Christians, we can't be trying to understand through our own natural mind. We're not going to use the same process we use to understand things before we're saved, but instead we're going to depend on the Lord through faith to bring us into all understanding. So we rest in faith on the Lord, uh, that he will give us the understanding. So we need to be spending time in prayer, but also especially spending time in the word. Those are two ways which he communicates with us today and brings us into that understanding. So we meditate on the word, which is his uh, recorded first message, so that we know when something measures up to that first message or not. So that's one reason why it's important what we are doing here is spending time in his word, studying what is the original message, so that when we hear preachers or when we hear uh, other teachers of the word, we're able to come to a better understanding of whether they're preaching God's word or whether they're preaching their own word which is uh, the word of the Antichrist. So with that introduction, let's continue on to verse 28 of chapter 2. And it says, Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So John again addresses his readers as little, little children, And this isn't to say that they are little in understanding, but this is to show how dear they were to him, that he really cared for them. This is a term of endearment that John uses as their pastor. So this is a pastoral term that he's using for his congregation or his flock that he's writing to. And he uses the same verb that is so common in John's writing, which is abide. This is to stay within, to rest, uh, not to leave, not to depart from. So he says, abide in him. Remember, walking in the light. When he sheds light on truth, we need to act based on that truth. We can't ignore that truth. So he's saying, abide in him, um, to rest in him. And why? He gives us a reason here. He says, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So we see that the purpose that we're staying in him is so that we can have confidence His coming, not so that we can be saved. That's already true of everyone who John is speaking to, but so that we might be confident that we have kept the faith, that we have fought the good fight. Uh, We want to be here about the Lord's business. And so we want to be found about his business when he returns to take us. So this leads us to another truth of our future as the church that as members of the church we will we will be judged for the way we act within the church and within the world now that judgment is not to determine salvation our salvation is determined by the blood of Jesus Christ but this is to determine our degree of reward in heaven so we read in second corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad and we know that our salvation is not judged based on our works rather it is judged based on our faith in Jesus Christ that having had faith in Jesus Christ at one moment even brings us into that saved relationship, so that from that point forward, all matters of faith are family matters and not salvation matters. So John is telling us here, and Paul in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about a family judgment, where God will bring his saved people, his redeemed people before the throne to judge how they lived after that saving work has been finished within them. Earlier, in Paul's previous letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, he talks about this judgment in a little more detail. He says, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So here again, he's speaking about, just like John, the original message. He says there can be no other message upon which we build our faith. It has to be built on Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident. So he's talking about how we live based on this foundation. We're all resting on the foundation of Jesus Christ. We can't go to another foundation for our salvation. But the work that we do through the Holy Spirit will either be of gold or silver or precious stones if we are resting in the Spirit or they will be of wood, hay, or straw if we are trying to do work by our own hands and not by the Spirit after we are saved. So he says, for each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So all natural things, all things done carnally, which means by the flesh, whatever we do in our own efforts is going to be burned up. Isaiah speaks about this. Paul speaks about this, that our best works, every work of righteousness that we do in our own flesh is as filthy rags. That's like saying it's like used toilet paper before the Lord. It means absolutely nothing. In fact, it is dirty to him because we have chosen to rest in our own power instead of resting in his. So it is abhorrent to have If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. So whatever work the Lord has done through us, by us allowing him to work through us, not standing in his way and trying to do it ourselves, if he is allowed to do works through us by our resting in him, then those things we will receive rewards for. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. So the man, even who has no good works to show for himself when he is judged by Jesus Christ, will still be saved, though every work that he has done is burned up because he did no works through the Holy Spirit, but all of his works through his own efforts. He will still be saved because salvation is not by our own efforts. Salvation is rendered true and final in Jesus Christ. So we know that even if we have no rewards in heaven, we still have the greatest reward, which is Jesus Christ. But we want to be about the Lord's business by resting in him because those rewards will bring him glory. Uh, When we cast our thrones before the feet of the Lamb, uh, we will bring him glory through the rewards that we have been given. In 1 John chapter four, uh, we read about the good work that can be rendered through us by the Holy Spirit. So we read, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So here we see three more times this verb abide. In fact, there is no book in the entire Bible that uses this verb more than the first epistle of John. So John is very focused on our staying in the faith, our staying in the love and the promises of God. We need to be dependent and resting on God. By this love, he writes, or by this love is perfected within us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So let's start with verse 19 here. We love because he first loved us. Our relationship with Christ does not begin with our love towards him, but rather with his love towards us. And because that love fills us, we are able to return a love that is not able to be conjured from a natural source, a natural body. We can only love him if he has filled us first with his love. Uh, Because this love that is spoken about is not a human love, it is a divine love. Uh, and that brings us into relationship with him. That we're able to, to be, even that we're able to love him back, is a divine work. Uh, this is not something that, is, that comes from our natural bodies. But he says that there is no fear in love. That perfect love casts out fear. And love is perfected in us by him. So resting in his love, abiding in this love, should cast out the fear that we would have, um, perhaps fear of damnation, fear of hell. We don't have that fear because we rest in the promise that he reminded us of back in verse 25, that we have the promise of eternal life, that we have the promise of eternity together with Jesus Christ. So in that love, when we rest, there is no fear. That we don't have to be worried about, am I doing enough? Am I loving God enough? Am I obeying his word enough? Rather, we need to be resting in love. And through that love, he will bring about good works through us. So in Colossians 3, uh, we read, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to uh, to immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So he's using importantly here, a verb that says consider. This is also translated as reckon or to know. So he's not saying, make your body as if it's dead to all of these uh, all of these passions of the flesh. but rather he's saying, know for a fact that this is already completed, and choose to abide in that, to live in that truth, rather than to try by the flesh, to become something that you already are. So though a Christian still lives in the flesh, when we use the flesh to try to accomplish spiritual tasks, it's a a catch-22. We are going to end up falling into all of those things that we're trying to separate ourselves from. It's like Paul says in Romans 7, the things that I hate, I find myself doing. The things that I want to do, I cannot do. And that's because in Romans 7, he's talking about doing things in the flesh. That whenever he's trying by his own effort to bring about the commandments of the Lord, he fails. But in Romans chapter 8, we see Paul rests on the promise that God has already completed these things. He says, Thanks be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, who has rendered righteousness to us. So we rest in that truth of who Jesus Christ is and who we are through Jesus Christ. And in that way, we are setting our mind on heavenly things and not on earthly things. When we are setting our mind on the problems of the flesh, we're going to be involved in the problems of the flesh. But when we are setting our mind on Jesus Christ and the heavenlies and the hope that we have that when he returns, we will be removed even from the presence of sin then sin has a less and lesser and lesser grasp on us. So 1 John 2.29, uh, our next verse in 1 John, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. So remember, uh, I don't know if we talked about this, but uh, a seed Renders fruit of the same kind. So we have to focus here in this verse on the positive statement and not its negative. The positive statement is if we see someone acting in righteousness, we know that this righteousness can only come from God. And this is not a righteousness by man's standards, but this is righteousness by God's standards that we understand through prayer and meditation on his word. That when we are in the Spirit, we can recognize those who are also in the Spirit. So this is a recognition of righteousness that depends upon that person being righteous through uh, the, the positional righteousness given to him by Christ, and then acting upon that righteousness by resting in faith in Jesus Christ. So we know that there is no other foundation for righteousness except for God Therefore, if one is acting in righteousness, he is born of God. This does not mean that someone who is not acting of righteousness is not born of God. That might be a carnal Christian who is depending on the flesh rather than depending on the spirit for his spiritual growth. So we have to take this verse for only what it's saying, but recognize the beauty of what this is saying, that we have knowledge in Jesus Christ that we can recognize and identify his righteousness, not only in him, but in one another, when we are resting in his righteousness. So in 1 John 3, verses 21 through 22, we're going to get to these in a few weeks, so we're just going to, to look at them as an example here. We read, Beloved, if our heart, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So this is talking about, in context here, a man who is walking in the righteousness of Jesus Christ by allowing the Holy Spirit to illuminate his way. That when our hearts don't condemn us, that means when the Holy Spirit has not brought anything, uh, anything to light in us, that we should be Concerned about regarding sin. In other words, if we have nothing that we need to confess to the Lord to bring us back into fellowship, we can have confidence that we are in fellowship with God. And when we are in fellowship with God, we are resting in His will. And when we are resting in His will, determining beforehand even to do that will, then we know that whatever we are asking of Him will be in His will. He is the one who works and wills within us so that he can bring our wills into accordance with his own and so that he can give us the power to to bring about that will. We see then that because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight, because we are in fellowship with him. So here is righteousness according to God. We see that the unsaved do not have any righteousness because righteousness depends upon imparted righteousness from Jesus Christ. There is no righteousness that we can give ourselves. Now the carnal man might be trying to bring about his own righteousness, even though he already rests, or even though he can already rest in the promised righteousness of Jesus Christ. He instead chooses to try to bring about another righteousness in the flesh. This is not going to save him any more than he is already saved. It's not going to make him any more righteous than he already is positionally, but it will uh, make his walk, make his work ineffectual because he's depending on the power of the flesh, although he can rest in the truth of the spirit and chooses not to. But the spiritual man who chooses to rest in the truth of the righteousness given to him by Christ Rather than trying to bring about his own righteousness, rather than trying in some way to save himself, uh, though he's already been saved by Christ, this man uh, lives spiritually because he is depending on the spiritual faculties that are not, not part of his natural body, but part of the spiritual reality that is true in Jesus Christ. So this is righteousness from God's perspective, that those who have been given the righteousness of Christ are perfectly righteous. But here is righteousness from man's perspective, and this is from the Christian's perspective, not the unsaved world. The unsaved world would look at all men with question marks, because they have no ability to understand spiritual things, because spiritual things are ascertained through the Spirit. But when we look at Christians, we know that the carnal man based on the saving work of Jesus Christ, is saved, but we have only the ability to recognize those who are walking in the Spirit. And this is why, as Christians, it's tempting for us to look at a carnal man and say that he is not saved. This is not true, but we only have within us the ability to recognize those who are walking in that truth, because we see spiritual things through the Spirit, but also through our physical faculties, so that we can understand someone who's living in their truth, that truth must come from Christ. But someone who is not living in that truth that is perfectly true within them, uh, it's like putting up a blinder or a screen in front of themselves and saying, although I'm saved by Jesus Christ, uh, I'm not going to be displaying that work. Well, this man is not building for himself rewards in heaven. He is building building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and that foundation of Jesus Christ will save him. But he's building with wood, stubble, and hay, so that on the day of judgment, all of his works will be burned away because they are carnal works, works of the flesh and not works of the spirit. But we, as Christians, when we look at a man who is living the spiritual life, and we see righteousness living vibrantly through him, through his resting in the Holy Spirit, we can see that his rewards will be great in the day of judgment. So we have the ability to recognize those walking in the spirit, but not the ability to recognize who are those who are saved. We wanna keep that truth firmly implanted in our minds that when we look at the spiritual nature of other Christians, we're not looking at whether or not they're saved, but whether or not they are walking with the Lord. And we can know for certain that those who are walking with the Lord are not only saved, but they are building rewards for themselves in heaven. Okay, we've got some questions here, so let me take a look at those. Uh, you know, just How can you know that a person uh, just justified themselves? Uh, well, a person can't justify themselves. We are going to look at a couple passages from... Uh, the epistle of James, to see what it looks like when a Christian is walking uh, in these spiritual truths so that they demonstrate to the physical world uh, this righteousness that is living in them. Uh, So we're going to look at that in just a second. What happens to those believers who are saved but keep on sinning? Um, For those, they receive no rewards or a lack of rewards uh, there are some uh, trains of thought that they will be given negative rewards and um, some sort of punishments. This isn't a very common uh, belief, but I know it, it is something I believe that Jody Dillo teaches uh, that there will be some sort of punishment in heaven uh, for those who walk in the spirit or in the, in the flesh and not in the spirit. Uh, but we know for certain that those who walk in the spirit, who build up spiritual rewards for themselves, will be rewarded. And all that we know for certain about the, the carnal Christian is that they will have a lack of rewards, or at, at, uh, at best, they will have no rewards at all. So, uh, Lisa, there are carnal Christians living in the flesh. Uh, They do not have rewards by living in carnality. Yeah, and that that word carnality is really important to understand. Carnality doesn't mean sin. Carnality means the flesh. So when they are living in the flesh, the only result of that is sin, because the flesh can't bring about righteousness. But carnality is not itself the sin. Uh, It is the beginning of sin. It is the root of sin. But sin comes through carnality. Carnality isn't something like sexual sin. A lot of people think, "Oh, carnality we we use in our modern English language to talk about sexual sins. But actually, it, it just means living by means of the flesh rather than living by means of the spirit. And uh, welcome, Nita. We're glad you're here. <clears throat> okay. Okay. want to put that in twice. Uh, All right, but let's look at James, uh, as promised, and James is a pretty hard epistle for people to understand, and I think it has to do with a lot of the lordship salvation teaching that has come through the church. Uh, So, even back as far as as Augustine in the third century AD, the, the epistle of James became rather muddied by theology but it's not within its own context difficult to understand. When we recognize that James has given his epistle to saved believers and that saving faith has always been in Christ alone, uh, by faith alone, then it's not hard for us to read the book of James and understand that everyone he's addressing here has confidence in eternal salvation. But what he's talking about is the practical application of that salvation, that once we are positionally saved, how do we live experientially? So James is talking about primarily second tense salvation, and he gives us some some very difficult passages for us to, to reconcile if we have in our minds this idea that he's talking about first tense salvation, which is eternal salvation from damnation and hell. That's not the context of James at all. He is talking to a group of brothers. He calls them brethren. So he says here in James 1, verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So we know that every good thing that we are able to do is not done in our own efforts, but it's a gift from the Father uh, that comes through us. So in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is past tense. He brought us forth by the word of truth. This is a completed truth about you, a Christian who has been born again of God. He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren. Again, brethren is a term only used for fellow believers. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So this is talking about the practical application of the righteousness that is true of us, that is rendered through Christ, that must be lived within that sphere of truth. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So when a man is quick to anger, quick to speak, uh, we, we don't see that righteousness of God living actively and vibrantly through him. And we all want to be walking in the spirit and not by means of the flesh. So we want to be walking in the righteousness of God and not trying to make a righteousness for ourselves. James continues in verse 22 but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So remember John uh, in verse or chapter one, talking about uh, the fact that if a Christian claims that he doesn't sin, if a Christian claims that he's not sinning, he's lying to himself, he's deceiving himself. Well, that's what John's talking about, uh, James is talking about here. When he says, don't delude yourselves but do the word of God. And the delusion that he is warning against is this delusion that uh, if we are saved by Jesus Christ, then we can do things by the flesh. So he says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately or he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So when we read the scriptures, they ought to be like a mirror back on ourselves, reflecting whether or not we are walking in this fellowship with Jesus Christ, that we have the power through the spirit to walk within. Are we walking in the spirit and reflecting righteousness back to Christ? Or are we walking in the flesh uh, and even forgetting the the reflective surface of scripture so that we don't even see the carnality within us because we are walking by carnality and cannot see the spiritual truth uh, within ourselves rendered through Jesus Christ. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, and that is the law of God, the law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. So when we look at the law, and this is the law of God, we see shadows of it in the law of Moses. uh, But for the church, we see uh, the law of Christ as the law of grace, the law of liberty. And we want to be looking at that law of Christ, which John speaks about quite frequently in this epistle and that is to love God and to love one another. That when we are looking at this law and we measure ourselves next to the righteousness of Christ, and we see that his righteousness has been imparted to us, are we living in that truth that that righteousness is true of us? Are we living as if that is true? Or are we choosing instead to live by the flesh and so make our work ineffectual, making ourselves hearers only, but not doers because the doing happens by the spirit, not by the flesh. So with that foundation, with that context, we look at one of the most controversial passages in James, but really when it's put in its context, it becomes one of the most beautiful truths about the Christian walk, the walk of fellowship, where our walk with Christ, the spiritual truth that has been rendered true within us becomes a physical reality. Uh, for those around us who can see it. So are we living by the Spirit so that others can see the Spirit working in us and through us? So we read, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Now he is already saved. This man has already been saved. But he says, can that faith save him? Can another faith, beyond saving faith for eternity, save him in the flesh? Can another uh, look at him and say, uh, this man is saved? And that's what he continues on here to say. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. So in, here in this context, it's important for us to ask again, what is the subject of salvation here? And what is the object? What are we being saved from? Is this being saved from eternal damnation? Now, our temptation as, uh, as Christians out of an Augustine tradition is to look at every single word saved as if this is talking about eternal salvation. But this is talking about the judgment seat of Christ again. This is talking about our rewards. Is dead faith able to save us on the day of judgment, where our salvation has already been secured, but our rewards have not? Is this kind of dead faith able to render rewards on the part of the Christian? And James is saying no. If we Have only faith, we are saved, but as through fire. We are saved, but there is no evidence of that salvation working and living within us. Only the truth rendered to our account legally by Jesus Christ. So he says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And dead, remember, I think we've talked about this already. Dead in the biblical sense never has to do with non-existence. It always has to do with separation, things being separated from one another so that they are not working together. To give you a physical example, when the soul is separated from the body, that makes death. When the soul is separated from God, that is spiritual death. The soul does not cease to exist. It does not ceases even to have function within its own sphere, but it ceases to be working within the spiritual truth, within the spiritual reality that life has when it's united together with Christ. Uh, You can think of, I mean, even the imagery of of communion, the bread and the wine, when the body is separated from the blood, there is physical death. Uh, And so blood and flesh living together is life. So we see here that faith and works both can exist, but if they are not together, there is no life in second tense salvation. There is no sanctifying work being done when our faith is not being put together with the work of the spirit in and through us. So this faith and this work needs to be together in order for us to be in fellowship with God about his business, depending on the spirit and not depending on the flesh. So those two truths need to go hand in hand, our faith, but also our actions. And it's not actions by our power, but actions through the Holy Spirit, resting in the truth that we are already saved. So James continues in verse 18, but someone may well say, that means someone could say, And they would be just in saying this, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So he's talking about someone who looks at a Christian, a Christian who is saying, I have faith in Jesus Christ. I'm a good person. But then he has no works to show that. So James is giving us an example of here, not of justification before God, but justification before the unsaved world do they look at us and see the truths of Jesus Christ living through us by means of the Spirit? So this person who looks at a Christian who is not walking in these spiritual truths, but who claims these spiritual truths, would have every right to say, you show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, is his faith by his works going to save him, this unsaved man? Not at all. But Uh, the natural mind being able only to see the natural things and not the spiritual things needs this help, this help of a visible sign, a visible show of the spiritual truths working in the Christian. Because an unrighteous man would have every right to say, I'm doing better without Christ, because everyone I see in the church, everyone I see with Christ feels that they have license to go do bad things because they have Christ. And James is saying, this is repugnant. We as Christians have to be living in spiritual truth and not in fleshly truth so that we actually have the ability to demonstrate physically to the unsaved world the truth that Jesus Christ renders within someone, uh, the love that Jesus Christ has. We want to reflect that to the world around us. So he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So he's saying, even the demons believe what you believe, though the demons don't uh, have a kinsman redeemer. They don't have someone to save them based on this knowledge. Uh, So he says, You do well. You understand the truth. However, the demons also believe this, but even they shudder. They fear the Lord. But a Christian who is not walking by the Spirit, but walking by the flesh, does not fear the Lord. He is instead feeling that he has license license to to sin and say it's all covered by Jesus Christ and however that is true, the demonstration of his faith uh, becomes useless before man. Uh, so we continue here. but are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow that faith without works is useless that, Faith being perfected within us through sanctification, our second tense salvation, dependence on the Lord for the promises that he has given us. He says that faith without works to show that to the outside world, that faith that would be a sign to others of the work of Jesus Christ within us. He says it's useless. That when you divorce faith from the works that naturally come from it, it is does not allow you to be about the Lord's business here on earth, because only he can be about his business through you. You cannot be about his business for him. So he gives us a couple of examples. He gives us first the example of Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Now this happens in Genesis 22, uh, that Abraham living within the covenant promise of God as a saved man. His salvation took place seven chapters earlier. Uh, In fact, that probably wasn't even the moment of his salvation, but the first recognition of his salvation. It says, uh, Abraham believed and God rendered it to him as righteousness. Well, that happened earlier, and years earlier, probably 20 years earlier than this event um, here being recorded by James. So he says, Our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. Was this justification before the Lord? No, that had already taken place. Rather, this was a justification that the blessing, that the rest that the Lord had promised him, the, the life of a saved believer, had been justified in him because of his faithfulness. So it says, you see that faith was working with his works. So he was walking in the spirit, though he didn't have the indwelling power of the spirit. He did have uh, the spirit able to come upon him from the Lord so that his faith, the truth that he was resting on, was able to produce the works of faith. And he says, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Faith and works were together. They were not divorced from one another. Therefore, it was a living faith and not a separated or dead faith that is useless. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's the verse that took place well earlier than than the, the first story given to us here. And he was called a friend of God. We have also the example of Rahab. And this happens in the book of Joshua, I think around chapter four or chapter five. It says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's a a verse, again, that's been taken out of context by many. Again, we are in the context here, not of justified uh, before God, but justified before man. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Rahab, when these spies arrived in the land, had already believed. She said that they They knew of the God who had brought them out of Egypt, the God who brought them across the Jordan. uh, And she demonstrated her faith to the spies, not to God. God already knew her heart. God already knew uh, that she believed in him as the one true God. But Rahab demonstrated to the spies who were in her land, who had every reason not to believe her, that she was justified by God by the works that came with that faith, that she trusted in that one true God, and that trust gave her the power, the strength, the ability by the power of God to go against her nation in Jericho and instead to help the God uh, of the Hebrews uh, to whom God had made a promise of of the land of Canaan. So Rahab showed that her faith was leading to good works and therefore demonstrated that that faith was in her, uh, not, not brought about that faith within her, but demonstrated that it was already there by the works that came from that faith. All right, so moving forward, we've got about 10 minutes here. First <laughs> uh, John 3.1, uh, we read, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. So we see that the world doesn't recognize us. See, Let me read this one more time. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. And this will remind us of a verse that we read back in the beginning of of John's Gospel. And it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The world around us, what Chafer calls the cosmos world, the cosmos system, uh, it didn't recognize the light of Jesus Christ, but instead it was walking in the darkness of itself. But we, having the light of Christ living within us, have this lamp to our feet and this light to our path that we can read the word of God. We can be in prayer with him. We can be in fellowship with him through these um, through these faith rest activities. And thus, we can be walking in that light that is recognizable to us, though the world is blinded to it. We see that in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, uh, that the devil has put blinders on the on the world, that they can't see the truth of the gospel, but the light of Christ can still shine through that darkness. Though it's not readily available to them, the Holy Spirit can still work in their hearts to bring them to salvation. But in John 1:9 uh, through 11, we continue to read, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. That is speaking of Jesus Christ. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So that even the Jews who had been prepared uh, through the oracles of God, through the written word of God, the prophets, um, all the histories, Pentateuch, all of this did not prepare them uh, in their hearts for Jesus Christ when he arrived in the world. Their hearts were still dark, and their hearts were still deceiving them, Because they were walking in the flesh and not walking in the spirit, they were depending on their actions in the Mosaic law, rather than the spirit, the heart of God that is behind those laws. But we, it says, but as many as received him, that is receiving through faith, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So again, a distinction between the will of the flesh and the will of the Spirit, that Jesus Christ is able to bring about this saving faith, with, or this uh, saving uh, righteousness within us, making us children of God. And as children, we become heirs, heirs of righteousness, and that means having the promise of future righteousness perfected within us, So that it is rendered even to our account legally, though we rest or though we maintain our physical bodies here on earth, we know that we will be given glorified bodies later. And that is our inheritance from God as children of God. But this truth is true of those who have seen the light, who uh, who have entered into the light through faith and become regenerated through Jesus Christ. And so, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So we are intimately united with Jesus Christ, that when we are walking by means of the Spirit, we are identified with Christ in action as well. So that the world, which hates Jesus Christ, may also turn and hate us for that. But it is true that Christians can walk in the flesh. And this is not something that a Christian should do. This is not something a Christian ought to do. We've been given every spiritual ability to walk in the spirit. But if we choose instead to walk by the flesh, we look like the world. We have the stench of the world on us. Uh, a pastor I like to listen to, Jack Hibbs, um, says we will get to heaven smelling like smoke, uh, and I think uh, Paul might have used the uh, the analogy, perhaps, that we would get to heaven smelling like garbage, uh, because that's what he says. We're like filthy rags. We're disposable rags uh, when we are walking by the flesh and not walking by the Spirit. So we want to be so identified with Christ that the world would even treat us the same way as Christ, rather than being friends with the world, and that is friends uh, as in fellowship and fraternity with the world. We want to be living with Christ, and Christ was persecuted by the earth. We should not be surprised if we also are, because the world doesn't recognize the righteousness of Christ, so it shouldn't recognize the righteousness in us either. Though our works through the spirit, should justify us before the world, but it should be a paradox to them, that how can one, living in the righteousness of Christ, this this uh, this good teacher but not God, um, or even this, this bigoted man uh, who came making claims to be God, well, the world rejected him. Don't be surprised if it rejects you, but your responsibility is not to live by the righteousness of the world through the flesh, but to live to the righteousness of Christ through the Spirit. Almost done here. 1 <laughs> John chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. Even right now, we are children of God. This is not something waiting future uh, reality. This is true right now of the believers John is speaking to and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This purity that John is speaking of is our sanctification. And our sanctification does not come through doing works that are spiritual works through the flesh, but these come through allowing the Spirit to do spiritual works through us by faith. Uh, This hope that when we rest on the promise, when we rest on the truth that Jesus Christ is going to bring us into glory together with Him, then that hope is what gives us the power of the Spirit by the Spirit to purify ourselves Uh, This hope of future glory is something that every single Christian, by fact of the spirit dwelling within him, which is a positional truth of every Christian, every Christian can count on the fact that however his walk is on this earth, it will be perfected when the Lord returns. That whether he struggles in habitual sin, whether he has taproot sins uh, that continue to hold him down, or whether, or, not, or whether he is able to live a spiritually mature life, we know that all men will be rendered perfect based on the perfection of Christ when Christ returns. We will be conformed to his image. So we read here from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For this perishable, that is the flesh, the natural body, must put on the imperishable, the righteousness, the glory of God manifest in the in the resurrection body. And this mortal will put on immortality. And this truth, uh, this truth is also intimately intertwined with the reality of our citizenship in heaven, and that citizenship we already possess the passport for, and that's our faith with Christ, but we haven't yet crossed the border, uh, which is either the rapture of the church or death to be together with Christ, um, as Hebrews 9.27 says. So we read in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens. We are members of the heavenly realms, for which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are eagerly waiting for him. Uh, He is the captain coming uh, with a big plane to take all of the Christians home to be with him. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So again, our perfection, our promise of glorification together with Christ has nothing to do with our works, but all to do with the work of Jesus Christ. We want to be about his work by resting in the spirit so that we have rewards on the day of judgment. Uh, But those rewards, again, we want to have so that we can cast them before his feet and bring to him more glory. Even so, So again, the error uh, of many theologies is to make all things a salvation issue. Uh, We want to avoid that here in the majority of the epistles, because the epistles are addressed to saved believers, and salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone, and only Christ can render the truth of that salvation will bring about, which is our perfection, our conformity to his image. So with that, we have begun now chapter three and we've got uh, chapters three, four, and five left. Uh, so we're we're clipping along at a good pace. So let me uh, ask, are there any prayer requests and then we'll we'll pray and close.
0: You are muted. You are muted. Yes, I think you're muted. Hi, and I'm still
1: asking for prayer request for my daughter, Louise Marie.
0: Yeah, yeah, always. I will keep on praying for that. And then and mine is the visa, the, the social visa, and uh, the plan of outreaching in my church here. Uh, so pray for that also.
1: Absolutely.
0: I don't know, uh, Nida, if she can talk this time. Maybe she's busy. busy, busy. and, and John, I'm not sure.
1: Oh, Janet, I'm just seeing some of your messages here. Let me read those. Oh,
0: uh, no, I'm just uh, I know, uh, cool. commenting yeah. or the five books, like you know, but correct me if I'm wrong.
1: No, I, I think you're right here. Uh, when you say, I believe Abraham was saved when God first called him to leave the land from his father-in-law, please share your thoughts. Thanks. Yeah, so uh, our first uh, verbal indication that comes in clear language that Abraham had been saved already was uh, Genesis 15, 6. But the fact of the matter is he was probably saved in, uh, in the end of chapter 11 of Genesis, where he's called out of the land of Ur to leave his father, Terah. He comes uh, half the way, part of the way. He's uh, He doesn't quite make it to the land of Canaan yet, but he comes with his nephew, Lot, and his father, Terah, so he doesn't quite leave his, his, uh, yeah. his homeland all the way. Uh, but he does have faith in God, that when God has put a call on his life, uh, he does have faith uh, that the Lord is going to to bring about his promises and that sa- that faith, is saving faith. Uh, salvation is always on the foundation of the Messiah, the seed, uh, the savior, the redeemer, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, but the content of faith depends on what has been revealed to that person. So to, to Abraham, uh, at that point, not much had been revealed. He had probably the ac- access to the Noahic Bible um, the Bible that uh, would have come from documents that Noah had collected together. This is not something that we have, though it appears that Moses probably had something like this when he wrote Genesis. Um, he at least had a knowledge of it. So Abraham uh, probably would not have had anything more than we have in the book of Genesis.
0: Not Job. First 11
1: chapters. Not even Job, because Job was Job. probably written during the lifetime of Abraham, uh, so he might have had the book of Job. I think it's very unlikely, uh, but Job was probably written about the same time or sometime in that uh, four or five hundred years after the flood uh, before Abraham,
0: uh,
1: so yeah, basically all Abraham had was, was the first 11 chapters of Genesis in whatever form that took at that time, but uh, And then the direct revelation from God. And that was the content that he was able to have faith in. He couldn't have faith in in the the Messiah, Jesus Christ, because that hadn't been promised yet. He could have faith in a promised seed that the Lord would bring about a Savior of mankind. Uh, That is a promise that he could have put faith in. But remember, the foundation of that promise is always founded upon Jesus Christ and the cross, but the content of faith, the content that one has to believe in order to enter into that salvation does change based on a progressive revelation. Um, and that does not change the means of salvation. The means of salvation is always faith in the promises of God. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, I think, a really good clarification, Janet. Thank you. Uh, all right, well, let's pray and then we'll close. I know we went a couple minutes over this time, but uh, hopefully it was a blessing to all of us. All right. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, that you've given us your word that we can study, that we can understand, but also that we can meditate on. We know that this is not just an academic practice, uh, but it's it's a life-changing practice that as we come to understand your living word and it lives and breathes within us, uh, we pray that you bring about works to meet that faith that is in us, that our works... Uh, or that our faith not be a useless or a dead faith, but that it has the works to show to the rest of the world who you are and the power that you have to change lives. So Lord, we pray as James does for his uh, congregation, for his his fellow believers, that their works would come to match their faith, uh, that the spiritual truths rendered within them, the promise of eternal security and eternal life, would translate into works that the rest of the world can see and understand and come to know you through. Lord, we want to be about your business here. We want to be the light and salt of the earth. And we know that uh, we have no power within our flesh to do so. But you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can bring about good works through us. So Lord, we pray that you use us. We pray that we're able to be humble servants for you. Uh, ready and willing to be about the Father's business. Lord, we pray for Lisa and her daughter, Louise Marie. Uh, We Mm -hmm. pray that you bring her into intimate fellowship with you, that that she can be about your business and be building rewards for herself in heaven. Uh, But we also pray that we have the blessing of fellowshipping together with her. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know we have the promise uh, of you that you will bless our fellowship, that we're not to forsake the gathering of the body. Uh, that we as, as believers, even across the world, are able to come together to study your word, uh, to mm-hmm. know you on a more uh, intimate level, so that, uh, that our faith can become alive within us and apparent to the world. So, Lord, we pray that for Louise Marie, that she's able to enter into the rest that you offer through faith. Mm-hmm. Lord, we pray for Janet and her husband, Charlie. Uh, we pray for their visas. Uh, that they are able to get that situation figured out. We know that that rests in your hand and that you love and that you bless marriage. And we pray that they're able to enjoy that marriage together, uh, that they won't have to to rest in the constant uh, hope of a future uh, unison. Uh, Though we know that we are so blessed by our hoping and our purifying uh, through the waiting for you to return for us, your bride. So, Lord, I pray that, uh, that whatever waiting Charles and Janet do, that, that is able to be a blessing to you uh, to bring about uh, a deeper understanding of, of your relationship to the church. But, Lord, we, we pray for them also that they are able to, to be joined together here on earth, just as we will be joined together with you. So Lord, we also pray for Janet's ministry in her church, uh, that you bless that and that you guide her uh, into all understanding as she seeks to lead uh, other women within her church. And uh, Lord, we also pray for everyone who attends this study every Friday night, uh, that you bless them about their ministries, about their life, uh, that they're able to shine the light of Christ to others and thus bless you. Lord, we pray all these things for your glory and in your glorious name. Amen. Amen.